Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. My guest on today's episode of The Deep Dive is Ida Merriam Davis. Ida is the founder and CEO of Decolonized Design. Decolonized Design is a global community development organization that delivers effective alternatives to the DEI status quo, centering African and other indigenous approaches. She's leading a, mo- a movement to create a just and fair society in which all are participating, prospering, and reaching their full potential. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and African-American Studies from the University of California, Berkeley, in addition to a master's degree from the University of Southern California in Public Policy and Public Administration. It is a pleasure to welcome Ida to the Deep Dive. How are you today? Oh, Phil, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. I am doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, this is a conversation that I was you know, really looking forward to. And it's one that has given me an opportunity to really sketch out some really broad ideas and concepts that I want us to try to, you know, play around with today. And it's, and it's very interesting because I had another conversation that I recorded on Friday. So this will, that will likely be maybe re- released within a week or two of when this one will be released. That very different, but was also focused on the notion of decolonization, but in a completely different space. We were talking more mm-hmm. about future insights and all that good stuff. But nonetheless, I do want to spend some time on really the idea and the notion behind decolonization because it's something that I think is very important and germane to these ideas. But before we get to that, I want to give you an opportunity to share with our listeners, you know, how did you come to doing the work in the manner in which you're doing it. And I think your explanation will add a little meat to the question because I purposefully asked it in the way that I did, because if I asked it differently, I feel like I'll be giving it away. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I'm going to share something with you that I don't always share. So I do always share that, you know, I'm the daughter of political refugees from Ethiopia and being a black immigrant has informed all of my life, all that I do, right? But growing up in an African, particularly an Ethiopian household, we were told the stories of the great emperors and leaders before us. And, you know, I'm very clear that Ethiopia was a feudal state, so it wasn't always wonderful for everyone. But I do know that Ethiopia did resist colonization. While the Italians did occupy, we resisted colonization. And in exploring how, we resisted colonization. What were the tactics and strategies used by the Ethiopian sort of government and military force? I discovered that Empress Taitu, a woman, not only created the strategy, but joined the community to execute in really leveraging a, um, a very thoughtful and strategic approach to really pushing out the Italians. And what she did was cut off the water supply for the Italian 
force, the Italian military, right? And in doing that, they never used a gun. They didn't lose lives, right? They just stopped what they knew would force them out, stop the water, which they knew would force them out. When I think about that kind of strategy of what are the ways in which we can cut off the water supply to those ways, practices, people, places that are asserting oppressive forces, dominion over marginalized people. It's not that you need everybody. And yes, we are leading a movement, but we are looking for the ways in which we can cut off the water supply, the ways we can be strategic and thoughtful about really eliminating structurally those forces of occupation and domination. So I tell that story because my lifestyle as a community organizer, my work with decolonized design, my personal background have all really shown me that we need to develop leaders to leverage these kind of strategic approaches, right? And we know that our elders and ancestors have in so many ways, right, led the way, offered us guidance on how we might do that. And so that's sort of why I'm very passionate about centering on African and other indigenous philosophies and approaches. And taking that that analogy and, and kind of walking through that, you know, that kind of historical context of, you know, Ethiopians' resistance against colonization, that water supply piece, like, I want to go a little deeper there. Because we're in a global construct of thinking about the effects of colonization, not just in Africa, but again, it's a term that is that has become a default term to be used in many in many places. This idea of, of decolonizing and decolonization. So, in your mind, in the particular frame in which you work, mm-hmm. what is the water supply that we need to cut off? And maybe it's it's more than one thing. Maybe it's water supplies, plural. But just in keeping the, the analogy kind of simple, like where do you think we need to start first in changing the way we have these types of conversations? Yes. And I want to, before answering that question, I want to touch on something you just mentioned, which I am clear decolonization is not a metaphor. <laughs> it is not the like, hey, we don't like this, let's decolonize it. Or this is not good for people, therefore let's decolonize schools. And and I'm not saying that those folks aren't doing good work. What I'm saying is I'm clear that there are also material things that are being demanded of when we talk about decolonization. And that is something we're actively um, pursuing in our work. So obviously we do work with all kinds of organizations, companies, nonprofits, philanthropy, And part of the through line is what are the material things like paying a land tax, contributing to the land back, you know, at least in this country, we do do global work. So it's all contextual. That would be a different sort of material kind of response, but really thinking about in a value chain, almost in everything that you do, what are the ways in which you will contribute to repairing harm ultimately? Something that we say, and it might be controversial, is that we don't necessarily believe in reconciliation, right? Because reconciliation would assume that we had we were at one point in right relationship. When you have a genocidal history, we really need to focus on repairing harm because becoming connected again in, in quote unquote friendship or relationship 
to me is a white Western way of thinking about it. It's optimizing for that comfort. So I guess I want to just clarify on what decolonization really means to us. And that story being a more personal connection I have with resisting colonization. And I think you're absolutely right when you say things like there's more than one water supply. There are so many contexts and we lean on those who've done research in decolonizing methodologies. There are a lot of incredible folks, Maori researchers, all kinds, First Nation, I mean, all kinds of folks who really deconstructed what does it mean to center those furthest at the margin and then contextually that define where the water supplies are, right? As a person with little penalty or with lots of privilege, do I get to decide where the water supply is? And, you know, what is actually... It's really those who have the lived experience who are, you know, in the throes of it that can clearly, uh, they have that kind of vision, right? To see those things that I may not or others may not given their proximity. And, you know, this idea of, there is that, that idea of repairing harm, which is distinct, as you mentioned, from reconciliation. And I want to start to use that as a bridge into a more traditional sort of DEI conversation for a moment, right? Because I discovered your work through reading um, Stanford's magazine, right? So as a new subscriber this year, I was kind of, you know, flipping through and, you know, taking advantage of, of my subscription. And I came across this article and I was like, wow, you know, this is pretty interesting. And, you know, I had interviewed Dory Tunstall and at OCAD. And so these ideas and notions have bounced around in my work before, yeah. right? And, but had not seen it specifically in the frame of a counter movement to DI. And, and so that kind of obviously caught my eye. We're here. And so I want to, the language that you're using is language that I'm much more accustomed to in you know, community-based work, it is in organizing work, is in grassroots work, which all these labels, of course, are meant to sort of segment us, right? And so these are imperfect segmentations, but I'm using them in, in this context. Whereas DEI, in a way, in the way it's traditionally and kind of currently constructed, is none of those things. It is work that is meant to live within corporate and corporate adjacent organizational structures, right? It could be a nonprofit, but it's going to be likely a large, well-funded, corporatized nonprofit, right? So having kind of given that, that kind of long runway, how does the language of movement work, change work, grassroots work function within a DEI framework that doesn't have space for that. You're not often going to hear corporate people talking about repairing harm. They're merely interested in corporate things, right? Which And that's not on the agenda. So long runway, but I wanted us to get into that a little bit. Yes. You know, I think of ancestor Fannie Lou Hamer. I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I recognize, you know, and that's sort of the impetus for Belonging, Dignity, and Justice, this alternative framework we've created. And, you know, 
I feel like this is a safe space, so I'll share with you. I am often conflicted, right, about doing what I know is social justice, organizing, like you said, it's an imperfect, but this kind of work with organizations like corporations that have historically been committed to not <laughs> doing that kind of work, right? And it's it's fascinating in particular thinking about a year ago today or a year, you know, whatever, 11 months ago, right? Before these very public murders of by police and vigilantes, which let's be clear, has been going on the beginning of this country. But, you know, this being a racial reckoning, uh, eye-opening moment, whatever it's called, and having what some are saying is performative and virtue signaling and all that, it's a moment of conflict, basically, I'm trying to say, for me. And it's something that we, with our corporate partners, talk very at length about, and we have a readiness criteria. So not, you know, it's not like a, a transaction here. So we've said no to many Fortune 200 companies, and it's not because we don't need their business. Let me be clear. It's because there is a, a lack of willingness to take tactical and tangible, you know, steps and stands. We, you know, when we go into partnership, there's a understood relationship that we will be making public statements, not statements, let me say this differently. We will take a stand on public policy because it is about you know, dehumanization, anti-Blackness and addressing those structurally. They have a role to play and the organizations that partner with us are willing to step into that, that role. We talk a lot about, we, we love our friends at Ben and Jerry's who are you know, hiring formerly incarcerated folks, massaging their cows, taking a stand on reparations. Meanwhile, all they make is ice cream, right? That is what they do. However, they recognize that whether they're thinking about the Iroquois philosophy of seven generations or they're just really strategic, they recognize that not taking a stand or not doing anything with the sort of social capital and power that they have ultimately leaders there won't be remembered as ones that, that mattered, right? But to say that I'm completely resolved or, you know, think that I'm a labor organizer. <laughs> My background was in union organizing. So there's always this kind of skeptical look at all organizations, nonprofits, like you said, the larger ones, they fall right in into that same category of workplace culture, frankly. And, um, you know, Again, centering those furthest at the margins, the work that we do with these companies, we are talking to those who are most systemically neglected, dispossessed, and pushed to the margins to get a good sense, like, what's really going on here? You know, is there a real appetite for this kind of change work? Is there a willingness to take a stand? We are an open and unapologetic abolitionist organization, which means there are elements of the status quo that must be released got to let them go. There's no reforming that. You just let them go. Then we can reimagine once we've created, you know, that kind of psychological safety. And then, you know, we reiterate on that. But like the reality is going, and that's kind of that reconciliation piece. Let's first repair the harm. Let's first address what's going on here. As you can see, I'm a hand talker. Let's first address what's going on here before we, 
we move to other steps? I hope that answers the question. I know I, I shared a lot, but. <laughs> it, you know, sharing a lot is what we're here to do. So is, so is hand talking. I practically sit on mine to make sure that I don't do it and to make sure I don't click my pen and all these little things that I do to get through the course of the day. So all of that is allowed. You know, the name of the show is called The Deep Dive. We're here for deep talk. Yes. And, you know, in your answer, you you highlighted your approach, but you did it very quickly. And I'm listening for it because I prepped, but our listeners <laughs> obviously are in a different situation. So I want to backtrack actually, because you mentioned, you know, you said belonging, dignity, and justice, right? So yeah. this BDJ approach is your organizational counter to what I would say just traditional DEI, right? I try not to use like verses and these sort of adversarial words. You know, this is not, you know, celebrity death match for those who might remember that show <laughs> from MTV, but um, it is a counter narrative to the more prevailing DEI narrative. So I didn't want that to go unexplored. So sure. I, I want to backtrack into that and give you an opportunity to walk through the belonging, dignity, and justice, and kind of take us to why it is framed as a counter mm -hmm. to DEI. So kind of two questions in there, explanation and then framing the counter. Sure. I might do it in reverse because it kind of sets up how we arrive there. So diversity, equity, inclusion in its current form, while aspirational, right? These terms, there's nothing wrong with those words on their own. The problem arises when you start to really investigate and interrogate what do those things mean. So when we talk about being diverse, who are we in diverse? I'm not with a group of, you know, depends on the group, right? In general, we're talking about white, heteronormative, dominant patriarchal culture. So you're diverse in relationship to that group. When we talk about being or having equity, rather, it's about being equal to or having equity to that group. And of course, inclusion, right? You're being included with that group. I would argue in those spaces, it's likely sexist, racist, ableist, homophobic, otherwise toxic. Do I really want to be included? And that's really the sort of questioning process that got us started on this was not designed for us or by us. You know, FUBU, it is not a FUBU experience. And you do some research on the history and you it's confirmed. It was not designed for us or by us, right? So that being what it is and knowing that reform only can take us so far and tinkering around the edges was not an option for us. You know, I like to say we are the radical imagination of Black and other Indigenous folks. What would it be like? What would the world be like if we didn't have to like fix some things that we didn't have anything to do with? If we just could create it on our own. And so we got together and really asked the spirit to like connect us honestly to the elders and ancestors. We're inspired by the Black Panther Party for self-defense. We're inspired by Dr. Angela Davis and others who have really offered us a look at what it means to protect our sacred personhood and to create safety. And that's, you know, I mean, if you think about even things like prison and police abolition, it's ultimately all of these things are about safety. How do we feel safe? And so we created the Belonging, Dignity and Justice. And you're the first to hear this. We're adding one more joy. So four, four pieces to the framework. 
and we'll be rolling that out soon. But really sort of these being the foundational guiding principles that define and help us center all of the work that we're doing. And so belonging for us is that indescribable feeling of being welcome. There's a book that I think uh, folks might be interested in called Radical Belonging that really talks about how it's connected to our physical bodies. Like that's how we define belonging, through our physical bodies having that safety, security, and knowing that as we are, we are good enough. Now connected to that good enough is dignity. It is your inherent worthiness. And today actually on SSIR, I uh, wrote a piece talking about why we refuse to say microaggressions and why we call them dignity violations and how they are so inherent to our sacred personhood. And it's that actionable affirmation. That's the indigenous, the black and indigenous take on it, right? There's the UN, there are all these different versions. And, and that's the beautiful part actually about belonging, dignity, and justice. In almost every culture in every country, th those concepts are understood. If you've done international work, you know, diversity doesn't quite sit, right? Like if you are doing, can you do diversity work in Africa? Maybe, right? But it's a different thing, right? But these concepts actually translate really well in the global context. So dignity being whether you're the CEO or the janitor, what you do matters and is appreciated. Working for the Service Employees International Union, I worked on the Justice for Janitors campaign. I worked on this, you know, this is personal to me. <laughs> that sacred personhood, people deserving respect, that is, you know, who I am uh, in my professional life, right? And then justice, listen, I make mistakes. You seem pretty perfect, Phil, but I'm sure you make mistakes. We all make mistakes. And so how do we repair harm? Why doesn't DEI have a single mechanism or vehicle for that? I see you laughing because you know you're perfect, but <laughs> you know. I, I always tell folks that, you know, accolades and praise is always more than welcome on the deep dive. Even, I know, that's right. <laughs> even when patently untrue, which would be anything even alluding to perfection on my part. <laughs> but all I think prior to that, notion. Yes. I'm smiling so much because we've had, not because of the praise, but because I think about the conversations that I've had, not just recent conversations, though I can highlight recent conversations, but throughout, even before the show existing, but definitely throughout the course of this show, where several and very important concepts that you highlighted came up, right? The notion of imagination, this notion of joy. So I kind of scribble like some quick notes here. Like, you know, I don't know what y'all gonna call it, but you know, BDJ squared, BDWJ. Yes. Like, you know, there's lots, <laughs> there's lots of- Let's talk about it. Yeah. There's lots of cool ways to kind of, to make that into a, a great branding proposition. But I think that joy and bringing in these words, like they matter in a very deep way. And I, you know, I'm, my parents are not the first person people to say this. this is kind of a, a saying lost in antiquity. You know, there's dignity in all work, right? Yes. And that's a, a core conceit to, I think, how I've tried to live my life. You know, my mom was in a union, proud member of 1199. We were kind of talking about that just this morning. Um, yes. And these, in, in many ways, 
movements like labor movements and all the future of work is labor, something that I say all the time. It's not the tools we use. It's having strong, powerful labor movements. They are very much based in, yes, the right to collectively bargain and make contracts and there's all the legal stuff. But at the core of it, much of it is in the dignity to be safe and protected within the environment in which you work. And that becomes even more important in a, in a modern American concept of literally having, you know, corporate towns, right? Whereas your, your entire life was predicated of where you lived, where you shopped, where you worked were all controlled by robber barons, right? And if you fell out of their favor, it wasn't about just, you know, the freedom of the labor markets to go just get another job. There was no other job to be mm-hmm. gotten. So again, kind of a long tail, but I really want to emphasize how important these concepts truly are because they are not just aspirational words. There are language and platforms that are critical to how we understand the way in which all of this is set up. And having the, um, the imagination, kind of what I, I just jotted down here, kind of like a blank canvas, having somewhat of a blank canvas to start with is critical. So beyond my kind of long you know, editorial there. What I, I what I, sharing. what I do want to do is focus on the justice piece a little bit. Mm-hmm. I remember I gave a talk, I guess going on three years now at Sustainable Brands in Vancouver. And the theme of the day was about the good life and what the good life meant from a sustainable practice perspective. And my particular invitation to everybody was the good life is predicated on justice. If we do not have a social contract that is rooted in justice, centered in justice, nothing else can function, right? And I kind of use John Rawls' veil of ignorance as the, you know, not saying it's the only way to think about it, but it's a way that I found very effective in my work. So anyway, Mm -hmm. having said all that, justice as a core conceit to your work, how do you interrogate that notion and put it into practice in the BDJ, soon to be BDJ, J squared, or whatever we're going to call it. How do you put justice into that matrix? Yes, I think it's an evolving question, right? Because these violations, dignity or otherwise, require you know specific kind of remediation. One thing I want to touch on that I think is kind of related is I'm a labor organizer and I love the labor movement and collective bargaining and all the things it stands for. And I'm super crystal clear that the foundation of unions are anti-Black. And I only mention of this is because, you know, there are no perfect institutions. There are no perfect ways of doing things. There's certainly a spectrum. There are some folks who are, you know, not dehumanizing as much and, you know, less anti-Black. And we all have that work of learning and unlearning. As it relates to justice, you know, acknowledging and atoning seem to be something this country and Western culture is like allergic to. I mean, we can't even get into the actual reparation part until we have, you know, repentance. We have some kind of understanding that a harm has been done. And in so many scenarios, and now I'm thinking outside of our work on decolonized design, but even within, right? How do we get folks to really 
have what we call the Greek term of metanoia, that spiritual awakening, that, you know, thinking, acting and doing differently and understanding that piece so that we can have a meaningful conversation around repairing harm. You know, that the biblical sense of really making people whole. And a lot of our work is really getting people to acknowledge and begin the atonement process in terms of the like, you know, one of our offerings, for instance, is a climate assessment where we will look at, you know, policies, procedures, formal and informal, kind of what's actually going on. And of course, there are ways to offer ideas on how to repair, but I'm more interested in that whole person that gets to the whole collective reparation of harm. And, you know, the reality is we're on stolen land with kidnapped people. How do we have that conversation with people? Because that is like, justice is not this high level transaction of I did wrong. You know, I I touched your hair. I wasn't supposed to. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. You know, I violated your dignity. Okay. That's a step along the way. But really, I mean, why did you dehumanize me in that way? What are the historical contexts that contribute? I mean, let's learn together and unlearn together what some of those things are. And so I tend to very rarely directly answer questions. So you will see because there's so much context, right? As you know, the historical context can't be separated. I'm very rarely ask straight questions. So we're going to do this dance together. This is going to be another aside. But when you mentioned kind of the anti-Blackness that's built in to labor, and this is not a a disagreement, but I'll recommend something which, you know, you might have already read it, but I read it like two summers ago and it's kind of stayed with me because it told me a different story than the one that I had been familiar with. Um, And it's called Subterranean Fire. Highly recommended as sort of a, I would say, essential look at labor movements in the United States. And they were a lot more multi, I don't want to say multicultural, but a lot more coalitions were engaged than I would have thought. Mm-hmm. And it was it was a really opening book, which does, and they tackle a lot of that. Not to say it's not true, but they added like a kind of richer context to it that I found really interesting. And that's a well-written historical book because another piece that it really emphasized was just how violent the movement against labor has been in this country in a way that I think the average, average kind of American just doesn't really understand just how much like the goons of like the Pinkertons and all the rest of these folks and police were used literally to just shoot down you know, labor organizers in the street. Yeah. So interesting read there. And I would also add- Yeah, go for it, go for it. um, Thank you for that book recommendation. And to your point, to build off that, if you've read The Long Haul by Miles Horton, who was, you know, create the Highlander Center, was a longtime labor organizer that intentionally created a lot of space for Black workers and organizers and I got married where the first Pullman porters organized on the West Coast. Like, I'm clear that there is beautiful Black organizing and labor organizing that is in our tradition. And I I just wanted to kind of highlight that they're not immune either, right? Anti-Blackness is such a global phenomenon. It is in everything. And so 
it's pervasive. Um, like I said, there's no perfect yeah. institutions. There's no perfect people and, and organizers. And I made that note. Like, you know, we, we're not even at the drop and we've already given listeners right. some, <laughs> some drops in there. So I hope we're going to try to include all this in, in the show notes. But, you know, another concept that's kind of jumped in and out of our conversation and because we've kind of talked about time and the ancestors have been invoked both in name, specific name and in general. And you highlight or you've mentioned this notion of, of Sankofa, you know, this idea of looking back in order to move forward. And in my work as anthropologists and working in future design, a big part of future insight work is that it's not called Sankofa, but the notion of it is the same, that when done well, you look to the past, there's historical um, work to be done to help you carve out what your future will look like. So I want to give you an opportunity to talk about why that the essence of that idea of Sankofa has been important and seemingly foundational to the work that you're doing right now. Yes, I think this, you know, ties back to this justice piece. And personally, knowing so much sort of of my history, my ancestors, where I come from, you know, a lot of the work of imagining, which I want to name, is a luxury. To imagine, to have the time to think. I recognize that, you know, our siblings in the hood don't necessarily have that same luxury to just think. And what would it be like if it wasn't like this? And, you know, so I want to name that first, but there's so much to be learned from what has uh, come before us. And, and I've had the personal fortune opportunity to know some really incredible OGs and elders who they themselves are talking about their elders and ancestors. And, you know, whether that's here in America or in Ethiopia, like this is a theme, like this is a, a part of our cultural, historical inheritance, if you will, or legacy is to to share these stories and to share what we've learned, how we've survived and thrived in, in that. Just to share, you know, some of these people in particular had the incredible opportunity of working with Sister Elaine Brown, who is the former chairperson of the Black Panther Party. I actually helped organize their 50th anniversary, so I met everybody. Every, all my like, you know, people I've revered for pretty much all my life. I worked with and helped them put on this beautiful 50th anniversary. Met Frederica Newton, Huey Newton's widow, and just hearing, right, about call it police brutality. I mean, name an issue, right? Education. Erica Huggins telling us about how they created the Oakland school that, you know, was a blue ribbon school, but none of the teachers were credentialed. Their sickle cell anemia, their ambulance program, the way they patrolled it, all of that are still needs and issues that we experience as Black people in this country, as Indigenous folks in this country. And so whether it be through storytelling, direct um, loving instruction, <laughs> I am clear that, you know, we have to look back to, to go forward and, um, we have to be willing to have the difficult conversations, the courage, really. That's one word that always comes up in any of the conversations I have with elders. It's like, 
girl, you better step up. Like, you know, say it. And to be honest, it's great that we're getting a um, positive reception. I mean, let's be clear, we have trolls too, but they're largely positive reception. But that's not how it's always been. And for folks on our team, we've been singing this gospel for a while and it has not been embraced until last May. And so that's a bittersweet, right, kind of response. But I guess that speaks to, back to that original point, if you look back, police brutality has been going on since the beginning of policing. (laughs) Like all of these things have been happening. So it allows us to have greater vision. That's the short answer of it. (laughs) But, you know, what's really interesting is like, I would agree with you in in the sense, not in the answer about Sankofa, I do agree with that, but that's not where the agreement's coming in. But you toward the end, you made this point about like May, obviously with the murder of George Floyd, that was like a pivotal turning point, right? And I want to think about in that moment, you know, all the sort of the DEI bat signal goes out and all the work starts to get done or talked about. And- How do we move this away from the reactive instinct that is triggered by guilt and performance into something that is deeper? Because the concepts that you're talking about and pushing are more long tail and resilient relative to the reaction that we see in the wake of something like George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, and the list goes on and on and on, right? So is it possible to move DEI in a different way, or do we need to, like you said, move away from it completely and fully adopt different types of language, whether it's your language, BDJ, soon to be other J, or something similar relative to where DEI Is DEI just not effective? Yes, it is not effective. I think that we should all divest and we should invest in community-centered alternatives. Obviously, BDJJ, BDJ squared is one to consider. Folks want to create their own. I think that's wonderful. I just think that it is also a ceremonial divestment from the institution, from that way of doing and thinking and learning and We are clear. I think part of the reason why um, Black folks in particular, but other marginalized people really feel seen, Sawubona, to use another uh, African principle, feel seen and understood in the way we do things is because we're very specific with our language. Dignity violation, not microaggression. You know, whatever it is, it's the reframing to it. We don't talk about, you know, we worked on a project that was initially about food security, we call it food apartheid. We are clear things need to be labeled properly because there's power in words. And it also, you know, explains in very short time what the dynamic is. It was designed, food, you know, fresh food options were not thought of as important in this neighborhood. It was intentionally designed for fast food to flourish. That is all understood, right, in food apartheid. Uh, So, I bring up that example to just say language is critically important and we have an inheritance from those who've come before us. And, you know, we have a responsibility for those who are coming to be creative. Like we have nothing to lose but our chains. 
as Sister Asada said, nothing. What do we have here that we're so invested in that's going to give us liberation freedom? It's not DEI. That's how, you know, and, and to answer the last piece of this, like post-May, it wasn't just that we were sort of inundated post-May. It was that the requests were for implicit bias. Let me say publicly, we do not do implicit bias, okay? Because I'll save you money. You got implicit bias. So do I. We all have it. What now do we do? Like, we're going to have to accept if you want to sort of be in deep partnership, we have to accept things like the sky is blue. You have implicit bias, right? Like that. Now, if you want to be clear on what those specific things are, sure, there's a place for that. But this idea of like, I don't know, it feels like chasing your tail and at the expense of a black or, or someone who is dehumanized in the situation, all they know now is that you have bias and that nothing is really going to be done about it. It's now exposed and nothing's going to be done. So, you know, we operate from a place of let's really, we don't have much to lose, fam. Let's do it. This is the time. And, you know, you mentioned specifically, and, and I think listeners of the show will, will say, I say this as well, you know, words do have meaning. Terms should be specific. If we can't name a thing, if we can't even agree that we're both speaking English right now, despite what any other languages we might speak, we're not going to be in a good place and incapable of having a conversation. And I want to I want to use you in opening up that door. And I'm kind of going to like run through it right now to kind of talk a little bit about like the very specific notions within colonization. You know, so before we even get to the D part of colon of that word, I want to talk about colonization as a force and the fact that it is, it is not only these things, but I'm going to pick these two things. It is language around resource. So it has a physical reality and then it also has a psychological reality, right? So in the language that we're using, land becomes property, right? Mm -hmm. You know, relationships now become transaction. And all of this happens through this idea of colonization. As we now, you know, think about decolonization and and the work that you do, you know, how do you specifically take that on of that resource language, physical resource language, and that psychological language? You know, how does that kind of play into that thinking a little bit? Well, I think you bring up such an important point here, which is decolonization having these two parts is factual, like for sure, we're really tackling, while we do always talk about the material pieces of it as a, you know, we want to be solidarity based, but it it does kind of function as charity, right? If someone is just paying a land tax, that kind of functions in the more transactional world. So I want to acknowledge that. And as it comes to the learning and unlearning piece, that psychological piece, the theft of colonization is really replacing Native populations way of knowing the world. And like, that's what they took. That's so critical. And that's what they took. And that's, you know, or what they are erasing or at least attempting to. And the beauty is here we are and we still have it. And we still are, you know, hearkening again, that Sankofa is coming back because that's how we stay connected to it. But it's these ideas of nature, culture, progress as like has to be seen in this white Anglo Christian patriarchal, you know, in that way versus the regenerative communal, you know, who we are as far as I'm concerned, 
And it's that kind of emancipatory world we can live in. Abolitionist world is the decolonization for our minds, that we can go to that place, that we daydream. And I know you had Adrienne Marie Brown, who's, you know, love her, just don't have enough amazing things to say about her. And, and just, you know, looking to nature, that's something she does that like in a literal sense, like the formations of birds and like, God is our inheritance. This is who we are. And so I think of decolonization of that as well. How do we engage that radical imagination, but that specific native indigenous, like who we are at our core imagination for that psychological freedom? You know, I'm keeping an eye on the time because I'm prone to run over and I don't want to, and I don't want to do that. And I want to get to you know, one last question before we go to the final segments of the show, which are off the dome and the drop. That's where we have, you know, hopefully a little bit of fun. So, you know, I want to get us out on just taking us back actually a little bit to that blank canvas that we talked about. And I'm not one that needs to, you know, end shows on an optimistic note. It's kind of like things are what they are. And I find like optimism is a burden for those who are oppressed. Like I'm not here to make you feel happy about none of this. Right. I know that's right. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think the imagination piece and the blank canvas piece is really, really important and, and kind of worth going out on because I think we do have a pretty important opportunity to kind of take on these structures. And some of these structures are things like, DEI in the ways it's traditionally or kind of currently constructed. So, you know, I think in at least the SSIR article, you kind of refer to it as the industrial complex, you know, the DEI industrial complex. I think Pamela Newkirk uses that one as well. Um, She's also someone who is a critic and challenger of the system. So with that said, you know, you know, how do we start to blank canvas away from this industrial complex, right? Which again, comes with this connotation connotation of military and all these kind of things that I just don't dig, right? So, you know, how do we blank canvas it a bit? You know, I'm going to rely on, as an organizer, relationship. And I would just say proximity is going to really unlock the kind of power and potential we all have. I know for me, like my door-to-door neighborhood organizing has really helped me engage my imagination. Talking to incredible, unbelievable people. Now, granted, we're in COVID. It's not all the same virtually. You know, it might be a little bit more challenging, but I could not emphasize enough. I mean, a lot of what I imagine is like, I'm thinking about specific relationships and people and things that like, what would it be like if, this wasn't the situation or that wasn't the scenario, right? And to really build off the vision of Adrian Mabry Brown and others, going to nature, like being inspired by animals, insects, trees, trees talk as a, that's real, you know, all of that. And really engaging the more untraditional parts of yourself because the lie of Western culture and white supremacy is that what they've given you is what you have, what you can work with. And that is just not the truth. You have, I mean, there's so much more. And to the extent you can either get off the grid or just disconnect and do the things that are antithetical, frankly, to 
the transactional Western way of doing things, I think the more you can engage that imagination and, you know, paint and do poetry. I mean, I write poetry all the time. It's something for me that, you know, engaging in artistic endeavors really feels like an engagement of the radical imagination. I don't know, you know, I know people have different relationships with art, but for me, that is some way that I find, you know, I can connect with the spirit and the ancestors and and others. And actually one of my, I have several drops, but one of them is book of poetry. (laughs) So a lot of thoughts as it relates to that. Oh, awesome. See, so we're leading into it, right? So that's the perfect setup to get to the final two segments of the show, right? So the first of which is off the dome, which is just some, no, just a few, few meaning, like I think I have three of them here. Sort of rapid fire question, first thing off the top of the head kind of thing. And the first one is, you know, obviously, you know, we're all working a lot, probably more than we should. And when you think about your work and building the organization and all the things that you're doing, what is your most essential tool in order to get your work done? And I limited it to one, but I could allow you two if you have two that you're dying to give us uh, the first thing that came to mind was my partner because i can't get none of this done without and not just i mean my mama i have a baby so just like the family unit because you really i mean i guess alternatively more tangibly like a laptop i guess or you know some of my beloved books and again i have a long list but the first thing that came to mind was a person. Okay. So, that's, yeah. That means we're in the right place, right? Like, <laughs> like I said, it's the first thing that comes to the mind. And second one, if you could have any one superpower, what would it be? Ooh. The first thing that came to mind was healing. And I just remember as a child wanting to be a doctor because I was like, oh, I can heal people. Learned a little different, but that's the first thing that, that came to mind. Okay. And the final one is complete the sentence. So the sentence is, I wish everyone could blank. Be free. Not going to argue with that one. (laughs) (laughs) So now we're in the final segment of the show, which is the drop. And the drop is an opportunity for, you know, both of us to share something with our listeners. It can be anything at all. I call them, you know, these intellectual tasty morsels, which makes them sound more serious than they need to be necessarily. But, you know, I have my drop and I'm waiting with bated breath for yours. So do you want to go first or you want me to go first? Feel free to go first. I have a few. Okay. A few <laughs> is good. Let me share. Yeah. 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 It, drops don't have to be one thing. They can be more than one thing. So my drop is actually a book that I use quite frequently. I actually still refer to it and I have it here on the side of me so I can refer to it. And it's called Ethnographic Thinking. From method to mindset. It sounds like super serious, but um, it's actually a thin book, but it's one of those books that is filled with like really good insights around, you know, how do you build really interesting projects and get to the core of understanding why people are motivated to do what they do. So it's part of building out your insights practice. And I found it pretty valuable. And it's, it's one of these books is always in my bag with me. I find myself reading it all the time. And the author is, um, Jay Hasbrock. And really, really great book. I picked it up on a lark one night because it was like, quite honestly, like a really good friend of mine recommended it and it was on like sale. I didn't have like one of these real 
flash sales. And I was like, word, I could get that for like on the cheap and it's recommended and it's dope. And it turned out to be worth every penny. And I should have bought it regardless of what it costs because it's been an invaluable book to me. And again, it's called Ethnographic Thinking from Method to Mindset, Jay Hasbrook. Thank you so much. I'm taking notes over here. I appreciate you. Can't wait to check that out. Okay, folks, get ready. I have a list. Uh, (laughs) um, So I adore Sisters of the Yam by Bell Hooks for Black women in self-recovery. It's like therapy in a book. Love it. Cancer Journals and Black Unicorn by Audre Lorde. Unbelievably profound writing. Poetic, you can imagine. And of course, speaking of poetry, some of my favorite Poems are written by June Jordan and Nikki Giovanni. They both have collected books of poetry that I love. I just love. And at the risk of being repetitive and redundant, I know maybe Adrienne Marie Brown has said this, but Parable of the Sower. I live in LA. There's a special connection given the where the, I don't want to give away too much of the story, but just how prophetic that book is. And the courage of a Black woman to write that kind of complex sci-fi is brilliant. And I should say, she has this, and I'll share it with you. It's a, there's an image of the back of her notebook that I have as a wallpaper, and she manifests. I will be a New York Times bestselling author. I will be this. And then all around it, it says, so be it, see to it. And I just am reminded, again, the ancestors, like, Write it down, put it in the universe, so be it, see to it. And that is, you know, I think words to live by. Yeah, I've, I've, um, all of those are incredible drops. I love Octavia Butler. Octavia Butler knew, <laughs> she knew, she knew all of this. She saw it coming, you know, yes. years ago. And I've highlighted that letter before several times, that letter to herself. I've, you know, I've shared yes. it with folks because it is so important. And not in this like kind of corny Western way of like the secret, like that. Right, that right, exactly. Whack. But um, <laughs> in a deeper way, it's really, I think, very, I think profound is the word you use. And I'll, I can't do any better than that one. So I'll agree with you wholeheartedly. Those are great drops. And, you know, overall, this has been a, a great opportunity, a great conversation. You know, I, I should give a, a shout out to SSIR for interviewing you because they brought your work and your perspective into my universe and you know that's a very powerful thing so i'm glad we were able to have this conversation it's a pleasure having you on the deep dive with me thank you it's such a blessing i look forward to staying in touch absolutely thanks so much you can listen to the deep dive via apple podcasts and our website thedeepdivepod.com Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.